And I would like to start this class today with, with prayer. Um, Father, thank you that we can uh, open up this book and read uh, these accounts of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, this is an extraordinary record about an extraordinary person. Um, however we're coming at it, may we have that sense um, for just uh, how amazing this is. The claims are quite uh, remarkable. Um, help us not to take them lightly, either in belief or disbelief. Um, and, and give us the freedom to just think together, uh, to, to stop um, and, and consider, Lord, you know my weaknesses, um, my failings. I pray for the sake of these friends that you would work past them and around them and uh, bless each one. Thank you that we can also just do this and pray. Um, I do, uh, do give you thanks for that and look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's always hard to know uh, where to push forward and where to linger, but I, but I do want to go ahead and linger for just a few minutes where I suggested I would last week, which was with the birth narrative still um, for just a few minutes. And what I want to do is not so much a comparison between Matthew and Luke as just looking at each of the accounts, but particularly Luke's account, and, and to, um, to identify the... Uh, the spectators, as it were, to this event of the birth of Jesus, and, and to reflect a bit on what they saw and on what they understood. Um, I've been clear with you, and I think it's fairly obvious to all, all of you, and certainly those who know me at all, um, I think this account is actually an accurate account of who Jesus of Nazareth was. It's a mind-boggling idea, but I think there was this young girl, almost certainly a teenager, um, who found herself pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Um, and the little boy to whom she gave birth was both her son, Mary's son, and the Son of God. Uh, there should be a bit of bafflement and mystery in that idea, but I think that is, in fact, what happened um, in this birth. It's worth lingering over and thinking about. Um, one of the lines in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church um, has gotten my attention and sort of shaped how I look at the Gospels. At one point, Paul observes in the fourth chapter, sixth verse of 2 Corinthians, he says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, in other words, the creator God, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has shown in our hearts, Paul says, to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, at some point, several years ago, that line leapt off the page and suggested to me a framework for how to read the Gospels that those who show up in the pages of the Gospels and walked with Jesus quite literally were gaining knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That was very literally what was happening for them. They were walking with Jesus and the glory of God was being revealed in that encounter in the face of Jesus. Now, yeah, there are moments like the transfiguration where there is this physical dimension to the glory, but I think the glory that's really in view here is the glory of the character of God. And so Jesus is a revelation of the glory of the character of God. Run with that. Um, I, I would suggest to you, if you want a great project, start with verse one of chapter one of Matthew, read the entire four gospels and ask yourself, in what ways are the people in this narrative looking into Jesus' face, encountering him, and, and, and having the, gaining a knowledge of the glory of God in that encounter? It is interesting, in the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, what does John say? 
the word became flesh and we beheld his glory glory of the one and only of God full of grace and truth so it's the revelation of the grace and truth of God in Jesus that reveals the glory of God very interesting that the first miracle that we get recorded in John chapter 2 where Jesus changes water into wine concludes with the observation that his disciples saw his glory and believed in him verse 11 chapter 2 so I would suggest to you that at point after point you look into the face of Jesus and you behold the glory of God and that includes that night when he is born and he is put in a feed trough and Mary and the others look into that feed trough and they see this little baby. Um, I would suggest that what you get there is the first revelation of the glory of God on the face of Christ and what is most fully revealed is is a lot <laughs> actually um, but, it, but it is among other things if you will the humility of God. Um, humility is not a static quality. Humility is the choice to put others first before you. And, and we find out in this baby that that's who God is and what God does. That he humbles himself in this way and ends up in the straw in a barn. And we behold the glory of God in that little face. You ask the question then, what did Mary see? What did the shepherds see? Or Joseph, what did the Magi see? What did the onlookers see and what did they understand and then what did they struggle to understand? The answer to the first question is kind of easy. They saw a little baby boy, a little Jewish boy in a bed of straw in a feed trough. The question then is what did they understand and what did they struggle to understand? And just this little meditation, if you will. Mary understood, I would say, better than anyone that this little baby was exactly that, a little baby boy. She had just given birth to him. She knew he was the genuine article. There were inexplicable mysteries surrounding her son's conception, but the baby himself was clearly the real article. He was a little boy, her little boy, and he was as needy and dependent on his mother as any other little baby born before or since. What Mary struggled to understand was what else he was. Given the mysterious and miraculous nature of the conception of this child, she knew he was something more. She knew that his name was to be Jesus, meaning Savior. She also knew that her son would be great, that he would be called the Son of the Most High, and that the Lord would give him the throne of his father David. Most remarkably, while the conception would always remain a mystery to her, she knew that the Holy Spirit had come upon her and that the power of the Most High had overshadowed her, as the angel had put it, and that her child would not only be called Son of Mary, but Son of God as well. Son of God, she had to wonder, what in the world could that mean? You go to the angels and they face the opposite problem. As they looked down on this town of Bethlehem and kept, as the carols put it, their watch of wondering love, they understood quite clearly that the baby in the feed trough was, in fact, the Son of God. They knew that the eternal Word of God had descended to earth to take on flesh. They knew this much very clearly. What staggered their imagination, even as they looked on, was it the one that they knew well as the son of God was now also the son of a young Jewish girl named Mary. As the apostle Peter would put it in his own reflections in his epistle, with regard to these mysteries, these are realities that the angels themselves longed to grasp more fully. 1 Peter 1 verse 12. Surely then the particular circumstances of Jesus' birth on top of the very notion of the incarnation staggered the angelic imagination even more. They marveled as the one they knew to be the creator of the sun and stars and life itself became a created being. 
They pondered how the eternal and uncreated, only begotten of the Father could become, as Paul would say, the firstborn of creation. They puzzled over how the one on whom all creation depends could make himself dependent on that very creation. They sang praises to God in the highest, as on earth the one who created vocal cords and tongue began to learn to use his own. As the eternal word of God rendered himself speechless until he could learn to talk. Where the angels might have expected to hear the sound of trumpets and drums, they heard instead the snorting and grunting of livestock where they would have expected the silks and satins of royalty, they discovered the coarse swaddling cloths of poverty, where they would have looked forward to making a spectacular and very introduction, very public introduction to the Prince of Heaven. They settled for sharing their secret with a few lowly shepherds in the fields near an obscure little town where the baby was born. They witnessed an act of God humbling himself, and along with all the others who looked on, they saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. <laughs> wow. I mean, just, it's, but, but I love what happens when you, when you say, who's looking into this face? What are they seeing, and how is this face revealing a knowledge of the glory of God? I encourage you, take that framework and run with it. Um, and as I say again, first chapter and second chapter of John, John the Gospel writer is already picking that up himself. Makes you wonder whether he was familiar with that letter to the Corinthian church as well. I think he probably was. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, but at any rate, that much, uh, frankly, a little bit of personal kind of um, indulgence almost where where I, I want us to understand this is not just some kind of academic or dry or distant study. Uh, this is an encounter with this extraordinary record and, and, and an attempt to let it challenge us, uh, puzzle us. Um, but as we look at it and take it seriously and read it all the more carefully, um, that it would indeed enrich us. Um, and that this extraordinary claim of the incarnation of the Son of God would rattle our minds uh, no matter how you're seeing it right now um, and, and, and wondering about it and thinking about it. Um, that is part of a sermon that I preached at some point. Um, it may be one you referred to a week ago. Um, and, and it went on from there to quote about 10 different Christmas carols. And if you, want, if you want to get the short version of everything I just said, pull out a good hymnal and start reading. Get, I mean, you can't find it in the most hymnals these days. You all are so deprived. Um, there are these things called hymnals, and some of them are just rich, rich, rich with the most extraordinary lyric and music. Oh, wow, i got to stop myself. Um, at any rate, yeah, it's there. And, uh, let me, I'll say only this. This one's from Martin Luther. Once did the skies before thee bow, a virgin's arms contain thee now. Angels who did in thee rejoice, now listen for thine infant voice. Anyway, get yourself a good hymnal. <laughs> the Oxford uh, Companion to Carols. So it's, I'm not sure the exact title, but that's, man, yeah, go get that one. Google that. Google that book. Um, at any rate, uh, but let's move on. John the Baptist is a fascinating part of these Gospels. Um, always take note when something shows up in all four accounts. There's not a lot that does. Jesus obviously does, and some crucial moments in his life obviously do. Um, but I'm not sure, and I, I haven't done this careful study, I'm not sure that we even get all 12 disciples' names in, in all four Gospels. And as a matter of fact, I, I think we don't. Uh, there are a few disciples that show up in all four. But all I'm saying is, any point where you've got something showing up in all four Gospels, go, oh, that's kind of striking. John the Baptist is one of these people. And he shows up more than once. And he's really important, apparently. And yet, 
you know what's kind of weird? You could leave him out of the story entirely. Do you need John the Baptist in the story? You know, it's interesting, you don't. And, and, and one of the things I love to do in these kind of settings where you're reading the Bible, uh, you could do it to other books, but I, but I particularly like to do it to the Bible, is as you're reading, particularly if you're kind of familiar with it um, and you want to kind of re-engage it, drop something out and see what difference it makes and then put it back in and see what difference it makes. Do that with a word or two, do it with a phrase, with a sentence, a paragraph, an episode. You can do it with everything there is about John the Baptist and you've still got the story of Jesus. What happens when you add John the Baptist? Well, among other things, you get this, this linkage back into the Hebrew Bible and into the Hebrew prophets and understanding of this Messiah person that really enriches the whole story, but also gives a, a whole nother level of kind of seriousness and legitimacy to the story. It's not just that the Messiah is predicted or pointed to in these Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, is that there is this tradition of a forerunner as well, that there's an Elijah who comes before the Elisha, and that in more than one place, you'll see these comments by the Hebrew prophets that are then fulfilled in this Elijah figure, whom we know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. Um, let's start in Luke and look at the birth of Jesus. Um, we had a little bit of this in front of us because we saw that it's actually in the story of John's birth that you get the story of Jesus' birth. Um, and you have the story of John's father being a priest. Um, he's in the division of Abijah. His wife is from the daughters of Aaron. He has this vision from the angel. He is doubtful about it. He is struck dumb. And then at the time of the birth, um, he is granted speech and he has already indicated that this baby's name should be John because the angel had told him it should be. Um, and then when he is granted speech in that act of obedience in the naming of his son, he is in verse 64 of chapter one, enabled to speak and he begins to speak in praise of God. Everybody's already kind of struck by something strange going on here. Verse 66, they're going, what in the world will this child turn out to be? The hand of the Lord is certainly upon him. And his father, Zacharias, then filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is verse 68 and following chapter 1 of Luke. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's something wrong with that prayer. What's the problem? This man is an elderly man who should have never been able to have children. His wife has just given birth to this baby. He is now able to speak and he busts into this prayer of praise to God. And it's not about his own son. He hasn't talked about his own son yet. It is somebody in the house of David that he's talking about. He's in the house of Aaron. He's in the priesthood. Who's in the house of David? <laughs> Well, the baby six months into the pregnancy of one of their relations named Mary. It's her baby that's of the house of David. It's her baby who is going to come and be what he talks about in these verses here. The savior, the salvation from our enemies, the fulfillment of the holy covenant, the fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham. 
that's the child he celebrates that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteous before him all our days and then verse 76 and you child now talking about his own son and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the lord to prepare his ways to give to his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and in this way john the baptizer uh, is introduced to the world as the forerunner the Elijah who comes before the Lord and prepares the way of the Lord um, from there we can go to the handout that you have did anybody not get a copy of this did anybody need this did you get it? who didn't get it anybody did it get over there there's a couple here too so if you do want it it's there um, and it's just a way of trying to get the three accounts of Mark, Matthew, and Luke in front of us in terms of describing John's actual ministry. Um, you'll see in Mark, you have, as we've seen before, the short version, the quick version. Uh, so in just the first eight verses, you have John's ministry. Um, he starts by citing the Isaiah prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. If you glance at the other accounts, you'll see um, the same quotation, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's the Isaiah 40 prophecy, okay? Now, it's interesting, in Mark, he says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, but the first words out of his mouth at that point are not Isaiah, they're actually Micah. Um, and there's a very, very similar line in Exodus with reference to Moses and the angel going before and preparing the way. Um, it, it's an interesting question. We don't like that, that um, you know, the second prophet didn't get credit, but it's, it, don't let it trouble you too much. I think what's going on here is clearly, it's the Isaiah tradition that is the tradition that, that has the weight. Um, so it's a little bit like if you're quoting um, Oh, I, boy, this is where I'm sorry, it's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> let me think, because the people I'm thinking of are not the people you would think of. I don't know. You're, you're quoting somebody who's really famous, and then, uh, you know, somebody like Mike Sikasis or me also made a comment that kind of fit, and so you threw that in there, too. But you didn't bother to name us, for crying out loud. It was David Brooks or somebody that you were that you were, I don't know, Joe Biden or something, I don't know, whoever it would be, that you, that you really wanted to make sure you knew you, you uh, knew their, their words. So we have the quotation uh, from both, but it's the Isaiah tradition as demonstrated by the other accounts that kind of, kind of bears the weight. He comes baptizing. It's a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he is described as this kind of wild wilderness guy and then he says, after me comes one mightier than I. I am not worthy so much as to handle his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew gives a very similar picture and then starts to add something. In that middle column, go down to verse 7. And you've got Pharisees and Sadducees coming out. And he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Hmm. Is he? Is God able to do that? Can God make a square circle? In case you're wondering, the answer is no. He can't. If it were square, it wouldn't be a circle, would it? Every now and then I got to mess with your minds a little bit. Um, so what's going on here? Can you create a Jewish person out of a rock who is actually Jewish? What does it mean to be Jewish? Don't you have to be born in a particular physical 
ethnic lineage to be Jewish. Can you create a human being out of a rock? Yeah, he could do that. God can do that. He can, he can bring out of something inert. He can bring life. But what would qualify that life as being a true son of Abraham? It's a very interesting question because I think it does anticipate what you will then find Jesus teaches and then his followers teach, including the Apostle Paul himself, that the true child of Abraham is someone who is a child of Abraham by the same faith that Abraham had, not by the ethnic genealogy that flows from Abraham. And, and logically, see, this then makes sense that John the baptizer can say, God can raise up children of Abraham out of these rocks. Because what makes a person a true child of Abraham is their faith in the same thing Abraham had faith in and the same God Abraham had faith in. Interesting little point, but probably worth making because it does anticipate that question. Then you go to Luke and you get some additions, the same picture, but with additions. And, and part of why I do this is because I think it also gives us a flavor from Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, and, and how you'll see them relating to each other. Luke giving us now this additional material, and, and the first part of it is in, in the first eight ver lines there. What have we got? We got the historical setting. And, and everything in that setting holds together pretty, pretty nicely, for what it's worth. Um, there's some questions about Annas and Caiaphas and the overlapping of their uh, role in the priesthood. Um, but Luke locates the appearance of John and then with John, Jesus, uh, at these points in these rulers' um, tenure. And then you get the additional stuff right in the middle of the right column, verse 10, where you not only have these strong words to the religious authorities, but now the crowds ask John, what shall we do? And his answer here is very interesting. Whoever has two tunics... Share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized, said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from people by threats or false accusations. Be content with your wages. It's fascinating little bits that Luke includes. Um, and it's the kind of thing then that gives Luke's gospel a certain flavor You'll see more of that in Luke as to very specific ideas for how to live. And, and, and it often includes how you deal with your money, your wealth, and your specific practices. Um, is John then the one anticipated? Is he the Christ? No, he's not. John continues to say, no, I am not the Christ, but the Christ comes after me. I am the preparer of the way of the Lord. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, any questions on just this much, the, the birth, the Luke 1 narrative, these parallel passages as they were between the three Gospels and John's ministry, basically? What was the importance of John being a wilderness man, as you were saying? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's a great question. He is. He is. Um, he takes. He takes this kind of vow. That's a. That's a pretty extreme vow in terms of what he gives up. Um, and many prophets did not have to give everything up like that. Um, but this. Uh, this vow. Is a, is a an austere. It's it's an, it's going to be an austere way to live. Um, and so yeah, it does take him out, out of civilization completely. He he is an Elijah figure. Elijah is not this wild, but Elijah is a pretty wild guy too. I mean, he he wears hiking boots, um, and and is is kind of out there. I will encourage you, go to uh, 
In, in other words, I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> you like the way I did that? Yeah. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> but at least not the real answer to your question. But if you want to explore John Moore, there's so many places you could go. Certainly the Isaiah prophecy, the chapter 40 um, and beyond. But um, hmm, is it from, uh, where is it? I'm sorry. Second Kings, or First Kings into Second Kings, where you get Elijah and Elisha. Uh, it's been a while since I've thought about it. Feel free to look it up and correct me. Um, but the Elijah-Elisha tandem does, does turn out to be a type of, of John and Jesus. And, and let that work with El Elisha and Jesus as well as with Elijah and John. Uh, just a really interesting, um, including even some of the specific miracles and, and ways that they worked. Uh, at any rate, I'll just leave that there and let you go do the work. Um, any other questions that I don't know the answers to that we want to talk about in that much? Um, you know, I kind of thought by this time of day, things would stop vibrating and motors would stop running. Oh, but I think we've got it for the next few years. At any rate, uh, we will be glad to welcome our neighbors. And meanwhile, we're glad to be the holdout on this block. Um, uh, then after those three accounts, go to John chapter 1, and we have a very, uh, well, different, but different primarily because it's, it's got so much of an additional, um, additional material uh, with regard to John. You don't have sort of something that contradicts what we just read, but, but you'll see it, do, it just doesn't stand in parallel to those other three descriptions of John's ministry. Um, and it's really very interesting what's going on here in John's gospel. Um, you have at the beginning an introduction to John in verse six, chapter one, there came a man sent from God, his name was John. Um, let me go ahead and say last week in the Zoom class, uh, a student happily corrected me on a particular use of a Greek pronoun, and it was really wonderful to have him do that. Um, and he caught me on the fact that, as I just said, you can mess up antecedents, um, that the antecedent to the pronoun, down in verse nine, I think it is, I'm not sure which verse it is, takes us back to the light, but, but it takes us back to the light because it takes us back to the life, and it takes us back to the life because it takes us back to the logos, to the word of God. So it is the word of God who as the source of life gives light to all being born into the world, everyone who is born into the world, who is in, in view here, and John comes as a witness to that one. My argument, I think, still holds then that in verses six and seven, John the baptizer is coming as a witness to the light, but you don't yet have the incarnate son of God. I'm not gonna rehash all that, um, but, but uh, you can listen to that and just make that correction, and my thanks to Brian for catching me on it. Um, so John comes then in verse six, and then um, we get him again down in verse 19. This is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him then, who are you? He says he's not Elijah, he, he's resisting being identified as Elijah. You can take that various ways. He is not Elijah risen from the dead, which is what some people thought might in fact be the case. But it's also just John resisting. John's, John doesn't mince words and he's not gonna make anything easy for anybody. And so he just keeps denying I'm, I'm the prophet, I'm Elijah, no. Who are you? And so he says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Again, you see the centrality of the Isaiah tradition there. All four gospels are citing that same passage out of Isaiah chapter 40. Um, he then starts pointing to Jesus, and now we are in the, in the you know, we, we do have Jesus in view. And so now he's pointing to the Jesus, he comes after me, 
I am not worthy to deal with his sandals, verse 27. That's in keeping with what we've read already. Um, and now in verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the guy I was talking about when I said, After me comes someone who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So apparently that episode has already happened when we get to verse 29. Now Jesus is interacting with John. It would seem that Jesus has been off to the wilderness and back. There is interaction between Jesus and John, between John's disciples and Jesus, and Jesus collecting disciples. And John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, Verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again in verse 35, John is there with two of his disciples, and he looks and says about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. There, There are questions about what kind of Messiah John the Baptizer expected. Um... I find these passages really helpful and worth keeping in mind when John will later send a question to Jesus, are you, are you the Messiah or not? What kind of Messiah was John expecting? Some people interpret those, that question as John was thinking Jesus was going to set up a political kingdom. I don't think we have grounds for thinking that way at all about John. And that passages like this give us a much clearer idea of what John was expecting and how he read the Hebrew scriptures with regard to the Messiah, that he is a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Says it twice, points his own disciples to to Jesus, and the two disciples in verse 37 who heard him speak followed Jesus. Jesus turns and says, "What what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. They stay with him. Um, one of the two who heard John introduce him to Jesus as the, son, as the Lamb of God followed him, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He goes to his brother, Simon Peter, says to him, we've found the Messiah. Hey, yo, bro, we have, we have found the Messiah. Um, he brings him to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says to him right away, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, and it means the rock. The next day, Jesus decides he's going to head up into Galilee. He finds Philip, and Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, same city as Andrew and Peter, and Philip finds Nathanael, And says to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Nazareth? Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says, well, come and see. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And this is all Nathaniel needs. There, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience of being really known by somebody. It happened for me my sophomore year of college when the woman who became my mentor as a historian <laughs> absolutely nailed me. And I didn't think she even knew who I was. At any rate, um, it, this happens to Nathaniel, Nathaniel and he just goes, Rabbi, I think, I think Philip was right. I think you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus says, really? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? 
you'll see more than that. Truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where did Jesus get his first disciples? He stole them from John. It's a, it's a wonderfully enriching of the picture, isn't it, of, of these disciples? And we will come back to this uh, later, maybe even next week, and, and work with a little bit more. But it's very interesting that, that these four guys specifically, um, who we know, whose names we know, and, and are pretty central to the, to the Twelve, um, started with John. And John pointed them to Jesus, and then they, they walked with Jesus. I'm sorry, say that again. Where Jesus, like they're fishermen. Right. When, in which Gospels are they caught fishing? All three of the others. Yeah. And we will, and we will come okay. back to that. Okay. And see how you relate these different accounts to each other. Um, and, and keep listening because what we're about to say next will have some influence as to how they relate. But we'll, but we'll also come back to it. Um, it's those passages that most of us who know the gospel accounts going to know. Jesus walks up to a couple of people who seem to be complete random strangers who are, you know, fishing and such, and says, I want you to follow me. They drop everything and they go. It's like, wow, that's, that's kind of weird. You know, so you, it's, it's helpful to put the passages together. Um, what, what does follow here is um, a picture of John continuing to minister, and he's got disciples. Jesus is starting to create a following, and, and it includes disciples coming from John. Um, but then the picture that emerges is actually Jesus getting out of the way and deferring to John and letting John finish his ministry. In each of the other three Gospels, there is a point at which it says, John was imprisoned and then the next thing it will say is, and Jesus stepped out and said, um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and it's a very deliberate waiting on the part of Jesus. And then the moment is, John is imprisoned. He has completed his work in the most central sense. And, he, and then Jesus steps out. You find that in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, um, where you have the, uh, the imprisonment of of John and then uh, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 John is imprisoned and then Jesus steps out and in Luke um, chapter 3 verses 18 to 20 you have the comment that John had not yet been imprisoned and and so Jesus is holding back until that moment comes it is interesting then you've got to go all the way into the fourth chapter of Matthew and Luke before you get to the actual beginning of Jesus's ministry. Now he's baptized and he has the experience of the wilderness, but as far as stepping out publicly and declaring the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you don't get that until John is imprisoned. Um, and then as we've seen, Mark gets there very quickly. 14 verses into Mark, you're there. It takes four chapters to get there in all three of the other gospels. What happens in John's gospel is, a, is much more of an account of John, the, in John the gospel writer's gospel, of John the baptizer's ministry. And so what you've got here at the end of chapter one is Jesus and now a few of John's disciples are heading back up to Galilee. And, and even there, they're sort of, they're getting out of the way. In chapter two then, we find them in Galilee in this little town called Cana of Galilee. That's where the wedding takes place. The problem is brought to Jesus by his mom, and you've got this cryptic phrase um, in which Jesus is understood to say something like, Mom, what have you and I got to do with each other? I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, it is, a, it is an idiomatic kind of a phrase, but I, th I think the tone of it is, Mom, what's this got to do with you and me? This is not our deal, Mom. It, this is not our wedding. This is not our problem. And it's not time yet. I, I know you know some things about me that make you inclined to think I could be helpful here, but Mom, it's not time yet. 
This, this is not ours. I don't know whether you like Jesus saying that or not, but, but, I, but I think that's kind of what he's saying. It's not time yet, Mom. We're okay. And then she still says, uh, whatever he tells you, do it. And, and so then Jesus does do this thing, and, and he does this kind thing. But, but he's still kind of saying, do you understand? It's, it's not time yet, Mom. And one of the main reasons is John the baptizer is the prophet, and, and I am waiting for him to do all he has been sent to do. And where does he go from there? He goes um, up to Capernaum. Um, and then he goes to Jerusalem. There's a trip to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 2 is where you have a cleansing of the temple kind of a situation. We may revisit some of that. Um, he's doing some miracles in Jerusalem. And John will do a lot in Jerusalem in his gospel. It's while he's in Jerusalem that you get the Nicodemus story in chapter 3, that whole interaction. And then in verse 22, after these things, these things in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there you're spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Okay, so all of everything we've had so far, John's not yet in prison. Jesus has not gotten to the point of stepping up publicly and declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the gospel of repentance. Then there's this argument that develops and there's some questions about John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And John's disciples come to him in verse 26 and say, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've borne witness, behold, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him now. John says, no, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. That's the joy that is mine, and it has been made full. He must increase, and, and I must decrease. And there is a question here as to where, because you don't have quotation marks in any of these old texts, and so there's a question of where John the baptizer's words stop and John the gospel writer's words start. Um, the New American Standard Version is keeping this still in the voice of John the, the baptizer, who continues to say, he, Jesus, who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is a wonderful picture of John the baptizer saying to his own followers, it's okay, guys, it's okay. I'm glad that people are following him now and going to him instead of to me. That's why I came. But do you, but do you feel the pathos? Do you feel the, the pathos even of his own followers going, really? We, we really love you, John, and, and, and we really identify with you. You and Jesus are two very different types of guys. And then look what happens in chapter four. So when the Lord, Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his followers were, he left Judea and went again up into Galilee. John's not yet imprisoned. Jesus is still deferring. John defers to Jesus and Jesus defers to John. And he heads back up to Galilee on the way he goes through Samaria and has this encounter with a woman at the well. It's all still preliminary. It's all still in formation. 
and Jesus still hasn't quite stepped out. And it helps you understand why in that exchange, the disciples come back and they find him talking to this woman and, and they're just getting to know him and they're baffled. Who is this guy? What, what have we got here? He's, he's the Christ? I, what have we got here? And, and then Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman and, and all that happens there. And then finally, at the end of chapter 4, verse 43, after two days, he goes forth from there into Galilee and ends up settling into um, uh, Capernaum. It is interesting, the first miracle that's recorded in Capernaum at the end of chapter 4 is that a royal official's son was sick unto death. And Jesus heals him. I don't want to make too much of it, but it is fascinating to me that in Jesus' preliminary work, before he steps up fully and, and sort of officially and publicly into ministry, you actually have... A, an unfolding of, of what Luke will give us in Acts 1.8 about the spread of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and into the end of the world. That's what we just saw. It's in Jerusalem where you have Nicodemus and the stories of Jerusalem. It's in Judea where Jesus and his disciples are baptizing and ministering. And then he clears out of Judea, goes through Samaria, and the gospel goes to Samaria. And then who received the benefit of Jesus' ministry as soon as he's back up in Galilee? It's a royal official, almost certainly a Gentile of some sort, representing the world as well. Like I said, I don't want to make too much of it, but it's an interesting unfolding of the same sort of paradigm of the unfolding of the gospel that you get at the beginning of Acts in Acts 1 verse 8. Um, I'll see if we can um, pick up next week a little bit more of John because you do get, that now that he's in prison and Jesus is ministering, then you get the episode in prison where John does ask the question, are you the one? And then you have this just tragic, tragic episode, just despicable episode of John being decapitated um, and his disciples burying him and then Jesus's response to John and and Jesus's very sympathetic brother to brother kind of response to that um, these these are two brothers just two Jewish brothers who love each other and and defer to each other. There is a kind of a pathos about this, uh, this relationship and about these two guys, um, utterly committed, lifelong bachelors, although both lives were cut way, way too short, and they gave up everything to pursue God's calling. Um, yeah, this is, this is wonderfully rich. Um, and, and we'll try to pick up just that bit that we didn't get to um, to finish that out uh, and then go on into the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, next week as well. So uh, everybody got a copy of the syllabus, Pierce and, and Amanda? Have you gotten a copy? Um, good. Before you leave, make sure you get one of those from me. And if you need a handout or anything, let me know. Uh, but that's it. And if anybody wants to stick around or talk about anything, glad to. But uh, we will end it there.